Well, good evening and welcome, everyone. Thank you all for coming tonight. Hope you all have had a good week so far. And uh, let's bow before the Lord and pray and ask him to bless our time of study tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come tonight and meet together in the middle of the week. We thank you for these times of fellowship that we have with the family of God. And we thank you for the opportunities to pray and to study together. Uh, Lord, tonight we desire to draw near to you and to have you draw near to us. And Lord, we desire to know more of you and your word. So Lord, bless this time of study. And Lord, uh, meet with us as we pray uh, to you and lift up our concerns and requests to you. And Lord, as always, may your name be exalted. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're looking at chapters 25 and 26. And our focus now in our study of created to draw near is on how all of the Old Testament pictures and symbols are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And chapter 25 is focusing on Jesus and his role as our high priest. And so he talks about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we know about the Lord Jesus is that his high priesthood is different than the high priesthood of Aaron. And so uh, the, the priesthood of the Old Testament was confined to the tribe of Levi, and then even narrowed down further than that to the family line of Aaron. So that uh, any priest, especially a high priest, had to come from the family line of Aaron. And so it was a matter of lineage, of ancestry. But the Lord Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi. We know that the Lord Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He's a descendant of David, the kingly tribe. And so his priesthood, the writer of Hebrews says, is not one of the Levitical uh, priesthood of Aaron, but it is a priest after the order or after the, the, the symbol of Melchizedek. And so we read in Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. By the way, if you want to know which passage of Scripture is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other, it is this psalm. Psalm 110, where it says at the beginning, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then all the way through Psalm 110, its focus is on the Messiah, on the Lord Jesus and his reign as king, but also as his role as priest. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on this psalm in Psalm 110 and compares the priesthood of Melchizedek with the priesthood of that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that is interesting about Melchizedek is just the way that in the book of Genesis, he appears on the scene and then he's gone. And you never really see him again, except for in references back to him in the Psalms and then in the book of Hebrews. And so Melchizedek, we know the story of Abraham going to rescue Lot and wins this victorious battle. And then as he's coming back with the, the spoils of war, if you will, the king of Sodom comes out, but also the king of Salem, which is Melchizedek, who is a king of this city, most likely ancient Jerusalem, but also a priest of the Most High God, Genesis says. 
And we don't know anything about him other than what Genesis says in those few verses. And we don't know where he came from, where he, what, what his lineage is, nothing about how old he is, his place of birth or his death or anything. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up on this and symbolically connects Melchizedek with the Lord Jesus. And I think we talked about this several chapters before, where I think Ed Welch in this book makes the statement that he thinks that Melchizedek is Jesus, like a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I don't think that's right. I don't, I don't think that's the best interpretation of Genesis. I think that Melchizedek is an actual historical individual who was a king of this city and he was a priest. He knew the one true God and ministered before the one true God. But the writer of Hebrews picks up on certain aspects of his life and that reference in Genesis and makes some typological or symbolic connections to the, the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, similar to what the writer of Hebrews does in other places with David or Moses or Aaron. And so I take it that Melchizedek is a real historical individual, but that there are certain aspects of his life that match up with the Lord Jesus. And so one of the things that he talks about in the similarity between the Lord Jesus and that of Melchizedek is that they're both human. They're both of the earth, he says. And so the Lord Jesus, like Melchizedek, shares in our humanity. And the writer of Hebrews makes a, a big point of that in chapter four, especially in other places in Hebrews that the Lord Jesus in interceding for us and representing us is one of us. He is a human being who experienced uh, the weakness of living in humanity, the need of living in humanity. Um, also, we read in Hebrews that the Lord Jesus faced temptation just like we do. He faced all of the temptations, all the struggles, but yet he did so without sin. And so because he is a human being who has experienced all the difficulties of this world, yet remains sinless, we have in him a very empathetic and gracious intercessor, a gracious high priest. And so he is, uh, he is a human being like us. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may find, receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so... In a few minutes, we're going to be praying together. And when we pray together, we can go in this confidence that Hebrews 4.16 is describing. That we have a high priest and a mediator, an intercessor between us and God, who is one of us, a human being, and has lived among us and experienced all the difficulties of this world. So when we go to God through Jesus with our problems, Jesus knows all about those problems because he lived through them. He lived through the hardships of this world. And so our priest, our great high priest is from the earth, but he's also quite unique in that he's also from heaven. So 
the Lord Jesus is human being, but he's also from heaven. And in this, he's very much unlike the priesthood of Aaron, isn't he? Because the priesthood of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, was strictly an earthbound priesthood, completely human. But the Lord Jesus has a heavenly uh, origin. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's picking up on the lack of information that we have about Melchizedek, that he just kind of appears out of nowhere. We don't have a place of birth. We don't have any ancestry. No one where he comes from, his, his death. And so Melchizedek, for all we know in Genesis, was never born and never died. It's kind of a literary thing that the writer of Hebrews is doing here. There's no record of his birth or death. And so symbolically, it is a type of Jesus having no beginning, no ending. And so the Lord Jesus is one who is eternal, one who is from heaven. And so by analogy, this uh, life of Melchizedek pictures Jesus, the one from heaven who has no beginning or end. And so the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7 verse 3, without father, or mother without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. And so he draws these analogies between Melchizedek and Jesus and comes to the conclusion that Jesus' priesthood is like that of Melchizedek's. It is one that has no end and it's of heavenly origin. And so our great high priest is human. He's of the earth, but he's also divine. He's from heaven. And because he is divine and from heaven, he is our king. He has authority. And that's one of the unique things about Melchizedek that causes him to line up as a better type with Jesus than Aaron. Because Aaron was a high priest, but he was never a king. Moses was the leader of the people of Israel. Aaron was his second, if you will, and his spokesman. But Aaron was never in charge, the, the, the leader of the people of Israel. Moses, when he died, he passed it on to Joshua. Aaron was never a king. But Melchizedek, who comes out to meet Abraham, he is a priest of the Most High God, but he's also a king, isn't he? He's the king of Salem. He's the king of ancient Jerusalem. And so Jesus matches up with that symbolically. And so Jesus is a king from heaven. He has divine heavenly authority. And Jesus returned uh, the priesthood to the true meaning and intent of the law of God. And so one of the things that he talks about is how when Jesus came, he, he interacted with the priesthood of Aaron in his day. He interacted with the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests. And what Jesus found when he came into the world was a priesthood and the teachers of the law and a religious system that had really, in essence, departed from the true meaning and intent of God's word. And so had layered upon layer all of these regulations and traditions and placed a heavy weight on the people of Israel, on God's people. And not only that, but they themselves had become corrupt and selfish and prideful. And so Jesus sought to restore the true meaning and intent of the law of God through his authority as the great high priest and the king from heaven. 
And so Matthew 7, 28 says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The people recognized that there was something different about Jesus. His teaching had authority. And then we read at the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus has divine, heavenly authority. And he is unlike the priesthood of Aaron in that he is eternal. And the writer of Hebrews makes a point of emphasizing this with Jesus, is that Jesus' priesthood is perfect, unlike the imperfect priesthood of the priests of Aaron. Because the priests of Aaron, they had to make an offering, a sacrifice for themselves, for their own sins, before they could intercede on behalf of God's people. Jesus doesn't have to do that because he's perfect. He he needs not, he has no need to offer a sacrifice for himself. But another problem with the priesthood of Aaron is that they didn't last. They would die and then you'd have to pass it on to someone else in the line of Aaron. Not so with Jesus because his priesthood is eternal. It never ends. And so he is the eternal son of God. He came from heaven and now he has returned to heaven. And when he had finished the work that his father sent him to do, he sat down, didn't he? He sat down in in symbolism of the fact that his work was finished, but also sitting down in a place of prominence of, of position at the right hand of the throne of God, a place of honor where he sits even now interceding for us. So when we go to God, we're going through our great high priest who is not far away from God, but who is right there at the right hand of God, making our case for us as we come before his presence. And so Jesus finished work is all that he needs to be our great high priest. His sacrifice is the final sacrifice and his priesthood is eternal. So we don't need any more of those animal sacrifices that the priests of Aaron offered. And we don't need the priesthood of Aaron at all anymore because Jesus' priesthood lasts forever. We don't need to pass it on from one generation to the next. And so we have no need for any more sacrifices or any more priests because the final one has come. So he finishes chapter 25 by just reminding us of our heavenly lineage and that like Jesus, we have a heavenly lineage now because we're connected to him. So what matters now is not so much who our earthly father or mother is like the priesthood of Aaron, but what matters is who our heavenly father is. And in him, in Christ, we have new birth. And so what's really important is our heavenly spiritual lineage, because now we have been born of God. As Jesus taught Nicodemus in John 3, 
Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So now we are a part of a heavenly family, a heavenly lineage. Jesus is our great high priest. And then in chapter 26, he reminds us that the way now primarily that we draw near to God is through faith, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we spent all that time looking at the Old Testament priesthood, looking at how the Old Testament saints drew near to God. And in order for them to draw near to God, they would come by way of sacrifice. They would come by way of a priest, by way of a mediator. But now Jesus has already been our sacrifice. And Jesus forever exists to be our mediator. And so now we don't come with an animal sacrifice. We don't come through an earthbound priest. We come to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he just walks us through kind of a, a big, quick overview of the gospel of John and just how important faith is now to our relationship with God through Christ. He makes this statement at the beginning. He says, with the temple and its sacrifices fulfilled in Jesus, the way to be cleansed and close to God is to follow him. In short, it is to believe. So we don't come through all of these ceremonies and rituals and sacrifices of the Old Testament. We come to God through the veil of Christ and we come in faith. That is how we draw near. And so he walks us through John and, and shows us some signs, some miracles that are pointing us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives this quote in the chapter from Tom Wright, which, who says that signs, miracles that Jesus performed are moments when heaven is opened, when the transforming power of God's love bursts into the present world. God's power and love are on display in these signs. And to the eyes that are open, they lead to faith. And so he gives us several examples. We have Jesus turning the water into wine in John chapter two. And at the end of that miracle, John makes the statement, Jesus' disciples believed in him. Then we have the miracle of the nobleman's son that Jesus healed with without even having to go to his house. And John concludes by telling us that this nobleman believed, trusted in Christ. We have the healing of a lame man on the Sabbath day. And that kind of served as a dividing point between those who embraced him and believed in him and those who were rejecting him and critical and skeptical of him. But that sign led many to belief. We have the feeding of the 5,000 with one boy's lunch. And John says that many believed after that. Yes, there were some who were there just for the food. There were some who were there just to get fed. And there were some who walked away from Jesus at the end of John chapter 6, because that's all they were there for, was to see what they could get from Jesus. But there were still many, many genuine believers who 
came to Christ because of that sign of the feeding of the 5,000. In John 9, we have the healing of a man who was born blind. And John says after that event that he believed and worshiped Jesus as God. And then probably the preeminent sign, at least in the gospel of John, during all of Jesus' ministry is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And if you follow the structure of John's gospel, I think that's intentionally what he's doing is he's building toward John 11, showing us all of these signs, building toward this climactic one of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead on the eve, if you will, at least in the gospel of John's telling of it on the eve of Jesus going to the cross and his own resurrection. And so this is a climactic sign in the gospel of John. And the whole passage is about faith. The whole passage is about faith. We read in this, in this story that Jesus' purpose was to reveal his glory, leading people to believe in him. Remember, Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But Jesus basically responded to her and said, this is so that you might see the glory of God. This, this was done on purpose. And so Jesus says to her, and this is before he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And so Jesus makes this statement, a very clear statement, and confronts her with the need for faith. Believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. Put your faith, your trust in me. And so he asks her point blank, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that those who believe in me will live? And she says, yes, Lord. I believe, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God, who is to come into the world. And that statement right there is almost word for word, what John's purpose is in his whole gospel. You go to the very end of the gospel of John and there is recorded there John's purpose for his whole gospel. He says, these things I've written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Martha makes the verbal confession of exactly the point that John wants his readers to come to. I believe Jesus, that you are the Messiah, the son of God. And at the end of this passage, at the end of Jesus calling Lazarus out of the grave, it says that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Now, yes, there were some who didn't. And they went and told the Pharisees and the religious leaders what had happened. And they, at that point, turn up the dial on their desire to get rid of Jesus to get rid of him once and for all. But many, many people, because of that event, believed in Jesus. So all of these signs in the gospel of John are drawing people to faith in Christ. 
And as I mentioned a moment ago, that's really John's purpose. His purpose is to point people to faith in Jesus. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John's gospel provides for us the door to God. Jesus even says so himself, doesn't he? In John 14, 6, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You want to draw near to God? Then it's through me. He uses the very analogy of a door in the gospel of John. I am the means of entrance. I'm the way that you draw near to God through faith. I want to give you just a a few quotes that come from the very end of this chapter that I thought kind of brings it all home. He says, these are just a few of the signs, these signs that we kind of summarized from the gospel of John. These are just a few of the signs that Jesus is the one who descended from heaven. They all point to the glory of the lamb slain for us. Look at the signs, listen to his words, and then believe. John puts the question before us. Do you believe that he is the one sent by the father? A simple response of believing becomes a sign both to ourselves and to the world that we belong to the family of God through Jesus. If you believe him, you belong to him. As John says at the beginning of his gospel, to those who believe in Jesus Christ, God gave the right, gave the privilege to them to become children of God. Faith is a mark of those who belong to God. So he says, true worship is founded on believing what God has said and done. That has always been the foundation of life with God. And we can even draw that back into the Old Testament. That even though in the Old Testament, under that administration, the way they worshiped God was through sacrifices and through the priesthood of Aaron, faith was still at the center of it. It was always faith. It was always belief. As Paul reminds us from Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and God credited that faith to him as righteousness. It's always been about faith. Even with the law that God gave Moses at Sinai, even with the sacrifices and the the priesthood of Aaron, it's always still been about faith. And as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, You don't have to be close to Jerusalem anymore. Rather, you come to Christ, the living water, the living tabernacle. You come to him, the truth, the embodiment of the invisible spirit, God, who cannot be contained by a temple. So Jesus is the word made flesh who dwelt among us, who tabernacled among us, and he came to reveal the glory of God to us. And through faith in him, we draw near to God. So putting chapter 25 and 26 together, Jesus is the door, the way to draw near to God. Through him, we become children of God. And then now being children of God, he is the one who ever lives to make intercession for us as our great high priest at the right hand of God. 
So every day of your life, Jesus is at the right hand of God saying, this person is mine. This person is your son or daughter because I died for them. Every time that we pray, every time that we lift up a prayer, whether verbalized or not, momentary or long, in a normal prayer of gratitude or a prayer of desperation, whatever it is, Jesus is there saying, this person is mine. They belong to you. They are a son or daughter of the living God. And the doors are flung open wide for us to come into the presence of God. That is what it is to draw near. And so we have a a priesthood now. We are priests, but we're serving under the high priesthood, if you will, of Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest. And just like in the days of Israel, there was a high priest, but there were other priests who also mediated for the people and represented God to the world. So now we are priests under the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us. And so I I hope that's encouraging to us, knowing that our means of entrance is established. It's established in Jesus. And he is always there for us, representing us. It's an encouragement knowing that we are in fellowship, in harmony with our God in that way through Christ. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the gracious and merciful work that you have done for us through Christ. Lord, some of the things that we've talked about tonight, about uh, faith in Christ and his great high priesthood uh, for us, Lord, we've just barely scratched the surface of what Jesus has done for us. He is our life. He is our hope. He is our peace with you. He is our intercessor and mediator. Lord, through him, we can be called children of the living God and we can draw near to you. So Father, may you be pleased to dwell among us and for us to seek your face, Lord, because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray this in his name, amen.